The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Now, this morning I want to look at what I see as one of the most fascinating studies in the Scripture, and that's typology, particularly the typology of Israel. One of the main tenets of dispensationalism, which is the predominant view of the church today, one of the predominant views there is the distinction between Israel and the church. Okay, They think Israel is one thing, the church is separate, two peoples, two different destinies, two different promises. Um, well, a study of typology really shows that teaching to be false. I think another thing that this really shows to be false is the doctrine of I.O. If you're familiar with I.O., Israel only. There's some who teach that the Scriptures are only for Israel. If you're not an Israelite, they have nothing to do with you. They don't pertain to you. That is, to me, you know, a pretty foolish doctrine. But I think this teaching on typology also really destroys that. So... Typology is the study of types. Now, what exactly do we mean by type? Well, theologically speaking, a type may be defined the way uh, Bollinger does. He says a type is a figure or ensample of something future and more or less prophetic called the anti-type. So you have a type that's a picture. It's picturing something to come, and that thing to come is the anti-type. Brumall has a concise statement that is helpful. He says that the type is a shadow cast on the pages of the Old Testament history by a truth whose full embodiment or anti-type is found in the New Testament revelation. So you have a type, a picture, a shadow pointing to something yet to come in the future which is the anti-type. Now, as we look at the New Testament, there are several words used in there to denote what we have just talked about as a type. Basically, there's five different words used that that point to this idea. First, there's the term tupos, uh, which we get our English word type from. Paul used this in Romans 5. He says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even of those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So here, Adam, we're told, Adam is a type, and that's tupos. He's a type of the one to come, referring to Christ. Secondly, there's the word skia, which is rendered shadow in Colossians. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, what's Paul referring to here? Well, the words he uses, festival, new moon, and Sabbath, represent annual monthly and weekly celebrations that were tied to the Mosaic Law. So this phrase is indicative of all the appointed festivals of Israel. If you go to Leviticus 23, you can read all those festivals. They're all listed there. And it's used that way at least three different places in the Tanakh. So he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Now watch the next verse. These are a shadow of things to come. So all those festivals... The new moons, the Sabbath, they were all pointing to something else. They weren't the reality. They were the type. They were pointing to something. 
Now, to come here is the Greek word mellow, which means about to. So these things were a shadow of something that was about to show up for them in the New Testament. Now, shadow here is skia. So we have a tupas. We have skia, both pertaining to types. Thirdly, there's the word hupadigma, translated copy, and is used in conjunction with shadow in Hebrews 8. He says, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, now that's the tabernacle he's referring to there, tabernacle in the wilderness, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So here copy is hupadigma and shadow is skia. It's used referring to the temple. So the temple... The structure, the tabernacle that Israel worshipped at, was a type. It was pointing to something else. So we have tupas, we have skia, we have hupadigma. Fourthly, we have parabole, which would be compared to our English word parable. This is found in Hebrews 9. He says, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So symbolic here is the Greek word parabole. And here it's talking again about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a symbol for that present age, which is not the age that we live in. Alright? So we have tupas, we have skia, hupadigma, parabole, and finally there's the word antitupon, rendered copies in 1 Peter 3, 2 and in Hebrews 9. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So here copies is anti-tupon. This word is used in the New Testament, denotes that's what corresponds to the type. It's the reality to which the prophetic picture points. Now, so we have type, and then we have anti-type. The type is the picture. The antitype is the reality. So a type is a real, exalted happening in history which was divinely ordained by the omniscient God to be a prophetic picture of good things which He purposed to bring to pass in the future. Let me give you a few examples that I'm sure you're probably familiar with of this. Uh, in Numbers 21.5, we have, "...and the people spoke against God and against Moses." Why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Did they really think that it was Moses doing all this stuff? I mean, think of what they saw. Think of the ten plagues they saw in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, then they get out there and they start complaining to Moses. First of all, if he could do that stuff, do you want to complain to him? No. He just, when you're gone, okay? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You know what happens next? (laughs) Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that He may take away the serpents from us, So Moses prayed for the people. 
So why was God killing the Israelites? Complaining. So I guess we really are Israel, aren't we? Here's what happens next. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the bronze serpent was a means of salvation for the Israelites. And this is a remarkable type of Christ as a means of salvation through Him. We saw this in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, much the, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, Yeshua didn't here merely find some illustration of His means of saving people by dying on the cross. It was a remarkably divine, ordained type of salvation from death and the punishment of sin by a God-appointed means. What did the Israelites have to do in order to be saved? Did they have to join the church? Come up front to the altar? Did they need to get baptized? If you want to get saved, you've got to get baptized, right? Did they have to repent of all wrongdoing and live a holy life? What did they have to do? Look at the bronze serpent and live. That's what they had to do. And so also we, we look to the Lord Yeshua the Christ in faith and we live. This type is a very beautiful picture of salvation by Christ through faith alone. They didn't have to do anything but look. You got bit? Then look up there. Of course they're looking in faith, realizing that God said if we look we'll be healed. So they're looking in faith to the serpent, they're being delivered. It's a picture, it's a type of Christ. So the serpent's a type. Christ is the anti-type. Now let me ask you this. It's a rhetorical question. Is the church saved by Christ? Do this. Yes. Of course it is. But listen. In this text, back in Numbers, the type was given to Israel, right? Yet we see the fulfillment of this type in the church. And see, that's where dispensationalism has it all wrong, and that's where I.O. has it all wrong. According to I.O., you have types and no antitype at all. There is no antitype. There's no fulfillment to any of these things. So in typology, we see the unity of the Scriptures. William G. Moorhead writes this concerning types. A type is a draft or sketch of some well-defined feature of redemption. And therefore, it must in some distinct way resemble the antitype, i.e., Aaron as high priest is a rough figure of Christ, the great high priest. And the Day of Atonement in Israel, Leviticus 16, must be a true picture of the atoning work of Christ. A type always prefigures something future. A scriptural type and predictive prophecy are in substance the same, differing only in form. A type always looks to the future. An element of prediction must necessarily be in it. So a type is an acted out prophecy. It is truly prophetic as a spoken prophecy and at equal value in spoken prophecy in directing the faith of the Israelites to their coming salvation. Now, for example, um, in the 53rd chapel, chapter of Isaiah, 
were given a prophecy vividly portraying the vicarious suffering of Christ. While at the altar in the tabernacle, the same great truths were daily predicted both morning and evening in the slaying of the innocent substitutionary lamb and the sprinkling of its blood before God. So we have that picture in the tabernacle, morning and evening, the lamb being sacrificed while Isaiah 53 talks about it at the same time. The sacrificial system of Israel was considered by New Testament writers to be typical of the perfect and final sacrifice of Christ. When John the Baptist saw Yeshua coming toward him, he said, the next day, he saw Yeshua coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the blood of every innocent victim and the faith of every old covenant offerer were now made efficacious through the offering of the perfect Lamb of God for the sin of the world. Without His coming, the old covenant sacrifices would have been meaningless and worthless. Because they were just a picture pointing to something. Let me give you a couple interpretive principles that we really need to keep in mind when we're looking at types. Because some people, like everything, they go crazy on types and they see a type in everything. Okay? Well, the nails in the tabernacle were a type of... No, no, you don't make everything a type. Okay, The Bible lays it out where are types and makes it a little clearer. But let me give you a couple principles. It must be recognized that types are grounded in real history. The people, the places... Events, etc., were deliberately chosen by God to prepare for the coming of the Christian system. So they're real things. They're things that happen. But their types are pointing to something future. Secondly, there's a graduation. This is really important. From type to anti-type. Okay, you, it doesn't go backwards. It's not anti-type and then a type. And it doesn't go type to type or anti-type type back to type. It's just type. Here's the picture. Here's the reality. That's how it works. All right, From the material to the spiritual. See, the type's a material, a real thing that's going on. It's an earthly thing and it's pointing to a heavenly thing. It's pointing to a spiritually thing. Spiritual thing. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. He's earthly. He's physical. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay, so you have the first Adam, And the last Adam. And Paul here is talking about Adam, who he calls a type in Romans 5.14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So Adam was a picture. He was a representative of humanity, and he failed miserably. Then Christ came, The last Adam, a lot of people confuse it, they say the second Adam, but the Bible doesn't say that, it says last. Okay, the last Adam, and he's the fulfillment of the picture. Now, type here in Romans is from Tupas, and then speaking of Adam and Christ, Paul says this, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Okay, that's the progression. We have the natural, the picture, the physical reality, and then it points to something spiritual. The type is natural. It's earthly. It's material. The anti-type is the spiritual, the heavenly, the fulfillment of the reality of it. Now, with that being said, 
What I want you to understand, what is critical that we understand, is that national ethnic Israel was a type. That is so important to understand. Understanding this is crucial to understanding Scripture. Because people read of Israel, and they read of the promises, and they say, well, they didn't get this yet. They're a type. They're pointing to something else. It's not about them. They're not the reality. All right? Dispensationalism misses this very important point, and they, they try to keep separate the type and the anti-type. The people of Israel themselves were a type. The nation itself, as God's special people, was typical of the true people of God. It was physical Israel, but Paul describes Christians, believers, as spiritual Israel. National Israel was divinely ordained to resemble spiritual Israel. The physical seed of Abraham typified the spiritual seed of Abraham, and some of the promises made to his seed were not fulfilled at all to the physical seed. But as Paul teaches in Romans 4, they were fulfilled in the spiritual seed. Physical Israel as a type of spiritual Israel is constantly set forth by Paul in Romans and Galatians. Now, understanding the nation of Israel was a type, we're not going to be surprised to find that Israel's sacrifices are typical, the priesthood is typical, the temple's typical, the land promises are typical. See, dispensationalism puts great emphasis on a rebuilt temple. I mean, they talk about that today. Oh, they're going to rebuild the temple. Well, they got a problem. They got a mosque sitting on this spot right now. And you try to move that mosque, you're going to have a serious war on your hands, okay? So, but they want to rebuild this temple. And they talk about, we got red heifers, we're, you know, we're breeding red heifers. The whole problem with that is you can't have a temple without a priesthood. And you can't have a priesthood without genealogy. And they have no genealogical record, so nobody can be a priest. So there's just so many flaws in this whole thing. But, all right. but they put an emphasis on the rebuilt temple, and we're going to get a priesthood. No, you're not. There's no genealogical records. Because they fail to see these things as types pointing to something. Physical Israel was a type, and so was the tabernacle. They serve a copy and a shadow. Copy here, hupadigma, and shadow is skia. The tabernacle was a type. That's what he's talking about here. It was a, served as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Now let me ask you this. Who is the anti-type? If the, if the temple and the temple worship was a type, who's the anti-type? Yeshua is the anti-type. And he said this in John 2.19. Yeshua answered them, destroy this temple. And who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. Destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. Yeshua replaces the temple. Yeshua is the anti-type of the temple. People, we don't need a rebuilt temple. Because that temple represented the presence of God among the children in the early days. And guess what? We have Christ. Now, who is the temple? Christ is described in John 1.1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He replaces the temple. He's the anti-type. It says He dwelt among us. The word dwelt here 
Eskenao, which means a tent. He pitched his tent. The tabernacle represented the presence of God. Now we have the presence of God in Yeshua. He came and he pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us. Notice what Peter says to the Jewish leaders. He says, It is to be known to all you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now notice what Peter says about Christ. He says, Yeshua is the stone that was rejected by you. He adds this from, the, from Psalm 118. He adds the by you, because he's talking, they're the guilty ones. He's rejected by you, the builders. A builder should have known what the cornerstone was. He's become the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. He is the stone upon which the spiritual house was being built. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, if you don't build on the cornerstone, Yeshua, you don't have salvation. Now, whose Savior was Yeshua? He was Israel's Savior, according to Acts 13.23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Yeshua, as He promised. It was promised to Israel. He came to Israel. So if the church and Israel are different, who's the church's Savior? Are we have the same Savior, but we're different people, different promises? No. He's our Savior. Israel's Savior is our Savior because we are Israel. Spiritual, true Israel. Now let me ask you this. How did the nation Israel move from a type to the anti-type? How did we go from we got a physical people and now it's a spiritual people? How'd they move? Good question. I'm glad you asked that. All right. Israel went from type to anti-type by means of a second exodus. Now we're all familiar with the exodus out of Egypt, but there was a second exodus. At the transfiguration, Luke wrote this. Who appeared, speaking of Christ, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. About to again is mellow. This is something that's going to happen soon. Well, the word departure is the Greek word exodus, which we get our word exodus. There is another exodus that Yeshua was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This was another 40 year journey. The difference was this wasn't a physical journey. This is a spiritual journey. When did the second exodus begin? What? Okay. See, to answer that question, we need to know when the first exodus began, right? It's the second. It's a type. So when did the first exodus begin? As David said, Passover, right? You'll remember that at the first Passover, it was observed when Israel was about to be delivered from slavery in Egypt. We see that in Exodus 12.3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Who is the antitype of the lamb? It's Yeshua, right? Passover was a type. Passover was a picture of something much greater. It pictured the redemption of God's elect through the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God, who was the Christ. Now, the typical significance of Passover is very clear 
in the New Testament writings. It's one of the clearest types you're going to see. Probably no Mosaic institution is a more perfect type than this. In verse 6, he says, And you shall keep it until the 14th day. So bring this lamb into your house. Okay? Bring it in the house. Play with it. Hang around with it for four days. Get attached to it. Then you're going to kill it. All right? The 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lamb at twilight. The first Passover in Israel was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, beginning Israel's exodus out of Egypt. All right, they're leaving slavery. They began to move out on the 14th. Then, 2,000 years later, Yeshua is crucified as the Lamb of God, guess when? On the 14th of Nisan, Passover. What a coincidence. How'd that happen? So the first and the second exodus, the type and the anti-type, both begin on Passover. Israel's journey from Egypt to Canaan, the exodus, was a type. It was a picture. Now who led the exodus of Israel out of Egypt? Okay, Moses, right? Moses is a type. The anti-type is Yeshua. Moses was the first Savior of Israel, whom God had empowered to redeem Israel. This was prefiguring the true Redeemer, who by His perfect sacrifice redeemed Israel from sin death. Now, if you look at 2 Corinthians 3, Moses stands in relation to the Old Covenant as Christ does to the New Covenant. One is inferior and preparatory, the other is spiritual and final. In these ways, then, the life of Moses points beyond itself to the life of Christ. And the parallels between Moses and Yeshua are amazing. Okay, especially when you look at the book of Matthew. Matthew is, and here's the problem, people. I think the church today has moved away from the Tanakh, or what they call the Old Testament. In other words, that's old. We don't need that. We just have New Testaments. All right, so you get a New Testament. But the problem is, if you start with the New Testament, you're starting three quarters into the book. Okay? And you don't know anything that's happened to three quarters of the story already. All the language they use in the New Testament, guess where it came from? The first three quarters of the book. So you don't know what's going on if you jump in in Matthew and start. But so Matthew is making a comparison between Moses and Christ. But if you're not familiar with the Tanakh, you're not going to catch it. See, like Moses, Yeshua grew up in Egypt, right? Look at Matthew 2.14. And he rose and took the child, his mother, by night, and they departed to Egypt. So Joseph and Mary, they take Yeshua and they go to Egypt. Like the story of Moses, Herod slaughters all the male children, right? Pharaoh does that. Herod does that. Matthew 2, 16-18. Like Moses' exile to Midian, Yeshua's exile to Egypt ends with the death of Herod Pharaoh. And then we have a new exodus foretold. Matthew 2, 15. And he remained there, that's talking about he remained in Egypt, until the death of Herod, just like with Pharaoh. This was to fulfill what Yahweh had spoken by the prophet. So this What's happening here with Christ is to fulfill what the Lord prophesied would happen. 
Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now Matthew here is quoting from Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now when you look at the book of Hosea and you study it in context, you know, look at the whole book, we find that Hosea is referring to the Exodus described in the book of Exodus. That's what he's talking about. But when we get to Matthew, the writer applies Hosea 11.1 to Yeshua as a youth returning to Judea from Egypt. And that reference just doesn't seem in keeping with the intention of Hosea. Hosea had no clue about that. That's not what he's talking about. And it's here that we need to remember where the meaning of a text ultimately resides. In the intention of the author. In this case, which is God Himself. And as we read Scripture in context of the Bible as a whole, we see that He made an analogy between Israel, God's Son, being freed from Egypt, and Yeshua, God's Son, coming up from Egypt. This is a pattern that runs all through Matthew's Gospel. Out of Egypt I've called my son is Exodus typology where Yeshua is the new, true Israel. And then the next step we see is Yeshua is baptized, Matthew 3, 12-17. And as Yeshua emerges from the water, we hear this, this is my beloved son. Which invokes a related image, Israel was adopted and became God's son at the Exodus from Egypt at the crossing of the Red Sea. So this is the new Exodus typology in which a new Israel is born. Again, you've got to be familiar with this knock to get all this. When we come to Matthew 4.11, describes Yeshua's temptation in the wilderness. And again, if we're familiar with the Tanakh, we see this pattern again. We read that Yeshua, the Son of God, spent how long in the wilderness? 40 days and 40 nights. Is that... 40, ring a bell anywhere? Okay. The reference reminds us of the Israelites' 40-year track through the wilderness. But the comparison goes beyond the number 40. See, the Israelites were tempted in the wilderness in the same three areas that Yeshua was tempted in. Hunger and thirst, testing God, and worship of false gods. Yeshua, however, shows Himself to be the obedient Son of God where the Israelites were disobedient. Indeed, Yeshua responded to the temptations. This is, it's so amazing how this all quote, fits together. So, in dealing with the temptations that Israel experienced in the wilderness, Yeshua quotes Deuteronomy, which is the sermon that Moses gave to the Israelites at the end of their 40-year sojourn. And what does Yeshua do next in Matthew? Well, in chapter 5, he says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. Hmm, did Moses ever go up on a mountain? And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So Yeshua, like Moses, goes up on a mountain, but he gives the new Torah, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua is the new Israel. And this typology can only be seen if we're familiar with the Tanakh. The transfiguration experience is pregnant with Exodus symbolism. Moses goes up onto the mountain with three companions. So does Yeshua. Moses' face shines with the glory of God. The face of Yeshua shone like the sun. Matthew tells us, Moses and Elijah appear, and the voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
Listen to Him. And I think this is most likely echoing the words of Deuteronomy 18. Yahweh, your God, will raise up. Moses is talking here and he says, Yahweh is going to raise up for you a prophet like me among the people from your brothers. To Him you shall listen. The symbology here is, is just amazing. Now, from the mount, the Lord descends, as did Moses, to find confusion on the plain. Mark 9.19, And He answered, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring Him to Me. They couldn't heal this guy. Now, Matthew and Luke add the word perverse here, which shows that they saw a parallel between the generation of the Lord's Day and the generation of the first exodus. We come to the book of Acts and Stephen begins his sermon with a review of Israel's history. And in the Exodus, receives a major part of his attention. And there's a clear parallel between Moses the Redeemer, who's rejected by his people, who worship idols, and Yeshua the Redeemer, rejected by his people, who use the Jewish cultists as an idolatrous way. So the nation Israel was a type, and their leader Moses was a type. What was the first Mosaic institution that was given? I'll give you a hint. It was the Sabbath. Okay? This was given, listen, to Israel. And boy, this is an area Christians fight about today, you know? I know so many Christians that came from a fundamental background where on Sunday you did nothing but breathe. Okay? First of all, Sunday was never the Sabbath. It was Saturday. Okay, so they got the day wrong, but they still, they, you know, they just, you couldn't do anything on that day because you couldn't read the paper. You couldn't, I mean, you just didn't do anything because they were trying to honor this. The problem is they're just not understanding the Sabbath was a type. Listen, there's not one text in the Bible that enjoins the observance of the Sabbath upon any man before the Exodus nor since Pentecost. Its first recorded observance was at the time of the giving of the manna, Exodus 16.23. Its purpose was for a memorial or a sign, according to Exodus 31.17, of their deliverance from Egypt, that they were a special people of God. It was observed in commemoration of the beginning of their nation as an exodus. As Americans, we observe the 4th of July for a similar purpose. It was a weekly reminder of their particular relation to God. It was observed by complete cessation from work. I mean, the law was very strict in its requirement of Sabbath observers. No fire was to be kindled. No cooking done. And the violation of the Sabbath was punishable by death. You picked up sticks on the Sabbath, you died. Now the rabbis took this and pushed it to the nth degree. And if you got up out of a chair that was sitting on the ground, and when you got up, the chair made furrows in the ground, you could be killed for plowing on the Sabbath. They just, you know, they, they just ruined everything, okay? As we've already seen in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, the Sabbath was a type. It was a shadow. It was a shadow that points to something else. So what is the anti-type of the Sabbath? It's Yeshua. He's the anti-type. What? Yeshua is the Sabbath? Yeah, see, 
The main idea of the Sabbath was physical rest. So Sabbath is a type, Yeshua is the anti-type. Right? The Sabbath was about physical rest. The physical rest, therefore, must have been typical of some higher rest to be found by the Christian. The strict observance of the Sabbath, which God required of the Jews, like the requirement of the strict adherence to the divine pattern for the tabernacle, was because it was to typify a perfect spirit rest of the Christian. See, centuries before Moses, the patriarch Jacob predicted Christ coming under the name Shiloh, or rest giver in Genesis 49.10. Yeshua himself is the rest giver. People, Yeshua is our Sabbath rest. It's not observance of a special day or anything. We rest in Him. Alright? The rest He gives from the burden and the bondage of sin is the Christian Sabbath. And it foreshadows that ancient Mosaic rest day. It was predicted that His rest shall be glorious. And it is glorious. That this is the true Sabbath keeping is argued by the inspired writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, 3 through 11. It says, He who ceases from his own works to obtain righteousness and trust in the mercy of God for the pardon of sin has entered into the Sabbath rest. So the Sabbath, like other ceremonial requirements of the law of Moses, is abolished. It's not something you know Christians have to do. If we did it, it'd be Saturday. It wouldn't be Sunday. But it prefigured the spirit rest. And people say, well, what about the Sabbath? I say, Christ is our Sabbath rest. We find our rest in Him. The end of burdens, the end of striving, the end of it all. It all re- He's our rest. He's our Sabbath rest. He's the anti-type that fulfills all that. Now, the writer to the Hebrews says that Joshua who led the Israelites into Canaan, failed to give them promised rest. Hebrews 4.8 He spiritualizes that promised rest and he locates it not in literal Canaan, but in Christ, of which Canaan was a type. So here's a positive proof that God attached typical meaning to that journey of the Israelites. Hebrews chapter 4 Now, what event ended the first Exodus period? It's a type. So we look at type and antitype. What what event ended that first 40 years? It's a pretty significant event. The destruction of Jericho. See, Jericho stood at the entrance of the Promised Land as a fortified city that represented a serious challenge to Israel's claim to the land. And its fall telegraphed a message to all the world that Yahweh was God of all people. You remember Rahab? She was afraid because she, we know Yahweh is God. You know, and she's like, yeah, he's, he's the one. You know, we're, we've heard what happened. We know the stories. And so you know the story. They just marched around Jericho and the whole place fell down. All right? So what event marked the end of the second exodus? It was another fall of a fortified city. What was it? It was the destruction of Jerusalem. See, Jesus is the Greek transliteration of Christ's Hebrew name, which is rendered in English as Joshua. Old Covenant Judaism was a major problem for those early believers. Right? It stood against everything they believed. See, 
Nothing represented the old system better than the temple. Here was where the presence of God dwelt for Israel. His presence assured them that they were His people. But 40 years after the cross, in AD 70, believers fled the city of Jerusalem as the walls of the city were being destroyed and burned. It's just so many parallels, people, between type and anti-type. Similar to the collapse of the walls of Jericho, the fall of Jerusalem was symbolized, symbolized the entrance of the redeemed remnant into God's everlasting kingdom. The believers were vindicated and revealed to be the sons of God while judgment fell on the Jewish system, which rejected Him as king. Believers now reside in the new Jerusalem, which is the new covenant. All right, And we see that in Galatians. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women, he's talking about two different women, are two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So Hagar represented the old covenant. So Paul's talking about the two covenants, the old and the new. And he says Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to present Jerusalem, present in that day. She is in slavery with her children. That represents Old Covenant. But the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. What exactly is this Jerusalem above who is our mother? Well, if you keep in mind the comparison here is between two covenants. Earthly Jerusalem represented the Old Covenant, so heavenly Jerusalem represents the New Covenant. The events of Jericho, when that city fell, that fortress fell, was a graphic image an actual prophecy of events at the close of the Jewish age. Forty years after Pentecost, there was judgment. And listen, here's what happened at the judgment of Jerusalem. Remember what happened with Jericho? What did they have to do to get the walls to fall down? They're blowing trumpets? Well, in Revelation, we got seven angels with seven trumpets that blow before Jerusalem falls. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. At that time, the great and powerful city of Babylon, which is Jerusalem, suddenly fell. They will stand far off in fear of her, torment, and say, Alas, alas, the great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. As in Joshua, the destruction of the city came at the sound of the trumpets. So at the end of the Jewish age, the destruction of Jerusalem came as Yeshua sounded the trumpet. This Exodus typology is seen throughout the New Testament. We see it very clearly in the book of Acts. Speaking of Moses, Stephen says this, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. Now the word congregation here is the Greek word ekklesia. This word is taken and used of what? The church. They were the ecclesia in the wilderness. We're the ecclesia in the new covenant. We see it in Acts 20, 28. It says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the ecclesia of God. Watch, which He obtained with His own blood. This flock was purchased with His blood. They were the redeemed of the Lord. They were the true Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
1 and following, the experiences of Israel redeemed at the Red Sea, sustained but disobedient in the wilderness, are said to be types of us. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. See, Christ, figuratively speaking, came with them also out of Egypt through the desert. Being a Jew, Paul must have felt that, in this sense, this is amazing. He belonged to the Exodus generation as a Jew. But as a Christian, he must have had his feelings still more strongly that he belonged to the new covenant people of God. And in his opinion, this new exodus of salvation was a complete typological counterpart of the ancient historical exodus, only on a larger scale and much more, much more profound sense. The author of Hebrews sees the situation of his readers as being parallel to that of the people of the first exodus. Now that, this author of Hebrews, he writes very close to AD 70 to the destruction. The cross and the resurrection are the second exodus. The 40 years are running out as AD 70 approaches. And the people of Israel are to bring upon themselves the curses threatened at Exodus in the book of Deuteronomy. And they'll be dispossessed of their inheritance as the heathen were in the original Exodus. And the new people of God will then be led into the, by the new Joshua, who is Yeshua, into the true spiritual inheritance. If a material kingdom and a material temple had in a sense, been the goal of the first exodus, these things have to be forsaken now because God's people have to step out in faith understanding this is the fulfillment. This is the anti-type. We also see exodus typology in the titles of Christ. He is called the I Am, which we see in Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh. He's called the Rock, the Shepherd, the Bridegroom. God was called these things in the exodus. He is the new Israel, and in a deeper sense than Israel was, He is the Son of God and the vine. He is the second Moses, the prophet and the servant. He is the second Joshua, Yeshua the Savior and conqueror. His titles overlap each other in His unique person. He fulfills all that was spoken by Moses in the law and by the prophets. So, people, I think it's clear to say that dispensationalism is wrong. And so is Israel only. They don't have an anti-type. They just have types that point to nothing, I guess. National Israel was a type. We have to understand that. And when we understand that, we can understand the church, the true Israel, is the anti-type. We are the fulfillment of the promises. And all the promises God made to the covenant people are fulfilled in the church. They're ours. There are promises. We're not looking for some physical nation to re- resurrect again and go back to a physical land, you know, and build a physical temple. All that stuff was types, shadows. You got to understand when you have the reality, you're not caring about the shadows anymore. When I was at sea, Kathy would send me pictures, and I had them posted all over my rack. And every night I'd lay there and I'd look at the kids and I'd look at her and I'd just long for that day to get back. And when I got back and hugged my wife and hugged my kids, I didn't really look at those pictures anymore. I didn't need those pictures. I had the reality. How stupid would it be to, honey, you know, laying there in bed next to her looking at the pictures of her? I got the reality. I don't need the type anymore. 
Those were pictures. They were fulfilled in Christ and in the New Testament. The true Israel is the Israel of faith, not of birth. Israel is spiritual. It's not natural. This view has been called replacement theology. You ever heard that term? It said that the church replaces Israel. I think a better term would be called fulfillment theology. Because the promises that God made to Old Covenant Israel are fulfilled in the church through Yeshua, who is the true Israel. Covenant, not race, has always been the defining mark of the true Israel of God. We inherited the promises, people. We inherited the promises. And when you look at this typology through the Scriptures, you're like, oh my word, this is amazing. That's amazing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for just the opportunity to look at the types and shadows that you have laid out. What a beautiful picture, Lord, that seems to so clearly point us to the truth of the Word of God. Father, help us to examine these things. Help us to study this out to see if it truly is so, Lord. I pray for each person listening to this, Lord, that they would be a Berean. They would not accept, not reject what I've said, but would study for themselves to see if these things are so. Father, we thank you for all we have in Christ, for the fulfillment of the promises that come through him. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Mm -hmm.